What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. Um, A few weeks ago, I posted on my Instagram story a picture of my grandfather's Bible, um, which is written in Armenian. And um, was just reminded of the importance of reading God's word in my native tongue for me, because it reminds me that he is the God, not just of English speakers, not just of one region of the world, but a global God who is for all people, who came to save all people. And um, Miguel reached out and asked if I would read the scripture reading in Armenian um, today. So I'll start off in Armenian, I'll read it in English, and then I'll say this is the word of the Lord, to which you'll respond, thanks be to God. Um, The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. Uyerp aniga tursielav hisusasav, hima para vorvetsav vortin marto, uasvads para vorvetsav anov, yete asvads anov para vorvetsav, asvadzal zaniga ir ansova bidi para vore, yevshudov bidi para vore zaniga. Vortsiakner, Kichma Adenal, Tezi Hed Yem, Zispidi Paravore, Yev Anspes, Hrianerun Asi, Te Uriesgertam, Tuk Checker Narkal, Hima Tezi Algasem, Nor Badviran Magudam Tezi, Vormegas Meg Sirek, Inchbes Yes Tez Sireti, Vortukal Megas Meg Sirek, Asov Amenabidi Zaniga, Kitnen, Im ashaget neresek, yete iraruvra ser unenak. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Amen. That's beautiful. Good morning, Park Church. So good. I think we can do better. I know we're small, but we're mighty today, right? Good morning. All right, awesome. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Park, and I just wanted to let you know I love coming down here and being with you guys when I can on Sunday. So it's good to be with you. We're finishing up our Mission of God series. It's been about, this will be the third week that we've been in that. And as you already heard read, we're going to be in John chapter 13. So if you want to keep your Bible there, we'll get to that in, in just a minute. But as we get started, I want to ask you a question. So get ready to, to think. I know it's church, so no, we want to engage our minds, right? So get ready to think. Here's the question for you. What do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? Uh, think about the different aspects of your life. What do you want to be known for? Maybe you're a student. What do you want to be known for as a student? What do you want to be known for as a parent? Uh, what do you want to be known for as a spouse, employee, employer, coworker, neighbor? What do you want to be known for? So take, just take a second, think about it. What, what do you want to be known for in those different areas 
of life. Now, while you're thinking about it, here's why it matters. Because what you want to be known for will determine what you put your energy towards, right? Like what you want to be known for. Oh, that's what I want to live for. I want to lift into that. I want to strive to be that. It's what you're going to dedicate your life to. So if you want to be known as a diligent student, you're going to work hard in your studies. If you want to be known as a friendly neighbor, you're going to be friendly, right? Oh man, come on, you guys. I know it's early, but we can do it, right? We can do it. So if you want to be a friendly neighbor, you're going to be friendly. There we go. Awesome, right? If you want to be known as a, as a, as a hardworking employee with integrity, that's going to be the focus while you're at work. What you want to be known, what you want to be known for will determine how you go about living your life. That's why it matters, knowing what you want to be known for. All right, now here's another question. When it comes to being a follower of Jesus, right? When it comes to being a Christian, what do you want to be known for by those who are not yet followers of Jesus? What do you want non-Christians to think about you? What, how do you want to be known by those who are not yet Christians? It matters again because what you want to be known for is going to determine what you focus your energy towards as a Christian. It's going to determine how you live out your faith in front of a watching world. So when non-believers, those who are not yet Christians, think about you as an individual Christian and when they, let's say, when they think about the church as a whole, what do you want them to think about? What do you want to be known for? Now, I think we should ask a more important question. And that's this. Instead of asking what do we want to be known for by those who are not yet Christians, what we really need to be asking is what does Jesus want Christians to be known for? What does Jesus want his church to be known for by those who are not yet followers of Jesus? Well, we don't have to speculate too long because in John chapter 13, you just heard it read, Jesus answered that question. And what you're gonna see is that the answer is not what political party you're most aligned with. Uh, the answer is not what your opinion on any other kind of hot topic issue of the day is. That's not it. Rather, it's how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he wants us to be known for. That's what Jesus wants his church to be known for. How we love each other. Amen? Now, notice that. Look in verses 34, 35. Just to prove I'm not making that up. Here it is. Verse 34 and 35. Listen to the words of Christ. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Notice commandment, not suggestion, not recommendation. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the key. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then notice what he says. By this, all people, that's huge. By this, this being how you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There it is, all right? It's really 
not open to much debate. It's pretty clear. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what is the distinguishing mark of the church? What should it be in the eyes of the non-believing world? It should be how we love each other. So if love for each other is how Jesus wants the world to know that we are followers of Jesus, we probably better understand what Jesus's love is like, right? If his love is to be our love, and that's how non-believers will know that we are followers of Christ, then we probably ought to know what his love is like. Notice again in verse 34, if you would, look what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and again, here it is, just as I have loved you. So I want you to love like I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now he says this amazing thing there. It's a new commandment. It's a new commandment. Well, what makes it new, right? Jesus has already told his disciples to love their neighbors, correct? Like we, we know he's already said that. Uh, he's also even said, hey, don't just love people who are like you and agree with you. Actually, I want you to love your enemies as well. So love your neighbors, love your enemies. So Jesus has already said very similar things. So what makes this a new commandment? But what makes it new is this, is not that we are to love others. That's not the new commandment. We've, we already know that's what we're to do as believers. So that's not new. What makes it new is rather the quality or the type or the depth of the love, the kind of love he's talking about. We're commanded to love like Jesus loved us. We're to love each other that way. That's what makes it new. It's Christ-like love that will get the attention of the world and possibly even open the door to people coming to faith in Christ. And here's what Jesus is saying. All people will know you're my followers if you love like this, right? The, the greatest observable apologetic the church has is Christ-like love for one another. Now, some of you are like, wait, I thought the resurrection was the greatest apologetic. Well, who's going to, you know, how many people are actually going to go see the empty tomb? And how do we know which tomb is the one, right? right? And anybody here alive when Jesus was actually raised from the dead? Right? So, no, thankfully. Good. You guys are listening. Right. right. Yes, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that Christianity is true. But what are people going to see on a daily basis that actually proves that Jesus is real, that Christianity is true? It is how we love one another. That's how Jesus set it up. We see this in history, even uh, the ancient historian Tertullian, some of you have heard of him, around 200 AD, said this about how the world observed the church. He said, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. In other words, what he's saying is it's how we are loving. Yes, how we love our neighbors, but how we love each other that's how people label us. That's how they identify us, right? That's how they know that we are followers of Jesus because how we love, this purity of love. He goes on to say, see how they love one another. 
So it wasn't just how they loved their neighbors. It was, it was how they loved one another. See how they are already even to die for one another. Now that's some serious love, isn't it? A willingness to die for one another. When was the last time you were willing to die for somebody in this room? Oh, it got quiet. It got quiet, didn't it? I mean, that's a massive question. Would you be willing to die for another follower of Christ? Their love was so genuine, so pure, that the world looked in and said, man, they would even die for one another, which that's as close as it gets to the love of Jesus, isn't it? Dying for somebody else. That's how much they loved. And the world looked in and said, yes, we know they're followers of Jesus because how they love one another. Um, New Testament scholar Gary Berg, speaking about that uh, quote there from Tertullian, he said this, in the earliest church, the social caring and commitment of Christians to one another was a profound testimony in a Roman world with its sharp social divisions. If you know anything about Roman history, I mean, that was a rough place to live, right? Talking about division and violence and all that. And he's saying the way they loved one another, that they came together and cared for one another was a massive, massive witness in that culture. He goes on, nothing astonishes a fractured world as much as a community in which Radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. Anybody agree that we might be living in a fractured culture, fractured world? We, we can agree with that today. I mean, I think that's one thing we can probably agree on, right? Fractured, broken, divided. He goes on. There are many places you can find communities of shared interests. And so this is so true of Denver, right? That there are many places you can go to find people just like yourself who live for sports or music, or gardening, or politics. And he says, but it is the mandate of the church to become a community of love, a circle of Christ's followers who invest in one another because Christ has invested in them. You could say, who love one another because Christ has loved them. Who exhibit love not based on the mutuality and attractiveness of its members, but on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone, including Judas. Wow. May we be a people like that, be known for love like that. So, so what is so unique about this Christ-like love among Christians that causes the world to stop and take notice? Let me give you three aspects of Christ-like love, okay, flowing from this passage. Now, I'm only going to give you three. This is obviously not, you know, an exhaustive list. We could go for days and days and days. We would never plumb the depths of the love of Christ, okay? Let me give you a couple of ways that we see Christ-like love that Christ is calling us as his church, as his, his people to live out among each other, all right? So here you go. Number one, Christ-like love is humble. Christ-like love is humble. Listen how the Apostle Paul describes the humility of Jesus from Philippians 2. If you want to turn there, you can. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. He says to the church in Philippi, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That would solve almost all of our problems right there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That is countercultural. 
Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. And then he says this, Jesus is our model. So he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now referring to Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus wasn't hanging on to the edges of heaven with the father like, you have to go down to earth and live and die for these people. You have to go down to earth and, and love these people, right? He was, the father wasn't having to push him out. Father wasn't like kicking him out of heaven to go down and do this. Jesus willingly did this. Jesus willingly came to us. He, it wasn't something that he said he had to, to grasp it and hold on to it. He said, no, I'm willing. And then he goes on, verse seven, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Remember, we're talking about God. Here God is humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant. And he goes on, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, not just death. Dying wasn't you know, just the sign of humility, it was the way that he died on a Roman cross, naked, humiliated, spit upon, beaten, scourged, body ripped apart, mocked, that's God willingly doing that for us. That's the kind of love we're talking about. It's a humble love. And you see an incredible example of this. Look up at uh, John 13, the very first part, first five verses. Which you'll see there, before we even get into the passage we're looking at today, you see Jesus coming to Jerusalem and he's having his last supper with his disciples, right? And it says in those verses that once Jesus realized, okay, Judas has betrayed me. It's time now. The arrest is going to happen. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be crucified. Once he knew that was all set in motion, it says that he stopped. He got away from the table, right? He got down to his, his, just his inner garment, took his outer garment off, got down on his knees, humbled himself, and washed his disciples' dirty, stinky feet. All right, now let me just tell you something. I hate feet. I hate feet. My wife asked me, hey, will you rub my feet? I'm like, oh, baby, please, anything else, anything to not have to rub. And she's got beautiful feet. It's just, there's just something about feet that drives, it just grosses me out, right? It's hard. It's hard. But imagine disciples, right? Think of, they're walking around all day, desert, grime, wearing sandals. Just think they're out there in their Birkenstocks all day, Okay. Bare feet, no socks, right? You don't wear socks. Please tell me, no socks and sandals, right? So bare feet, dirty, smelly, sweaty, and you have God in the flesh down on his knees, humbly washing their feet. And think about whose feet he washed. Peter, who was about to deny him three times after he said, hey, I'll go anywhere with you, right? He's gonna deny him three times. All the other disciples who are gonna walk away, they're gonna run when Jesus gets arrested. And then the greatest example of this kind of humble love, he washed Judas' feet. 
the one who betrayed him, the one who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, that's already happened. And Jesus, knowing that, still gets down on his knees, humbles himself, and serves Judas, loves Judas, and washes his feet. What would cause an unbelieving world to stop and take notice of Christians and the church? Humility. Humility. Imagine if Christians were known for how we humbly love and serve each other. Just imagine if that's what we were known for. How we humbly love and serve one another. Imagine the impact the church could have in the culture if Christians were known for not speaking first, rather listening first. It'd be incredible. Imagine if the church was a place that was known for putting the needs of others first, rather than just seeking to have all of our preferences and opinions catered to. Wow. It'd be incredible. If, if the non-believing world saw a church like that, what difference would that make in how they might consider the claims of Christ? What difference would that make in how they view Jesus? Those are all questions that I don't, I don't know if we have answers to because I don't know if we've actually seen that. We see some glimpses of it in scripture and in history, but man, I don't think that's what we're known for right now. So Christ-like love is humble. Next, Christ-like love is sacrificial. Christ-like love is sacrificial. Look at verses 31 and 32 there in John 13. 31 and 32, Christ-like love is sacrificial. Now notice what it says, 31. When he had gone out, he being Judas. So Jesus washes their feet. Now Judas is gonna go to the religious leaders, get them ready to come and betray Christ. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now, and that's amazing. He says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. That word now is incredible. He's saying now, now that Judas has left and gone to betray me and bring the soldiers and the religious leaders, now the son of man, Jesus, now Jesus is glorified. Like I get Jesus being glorified through all the miracles. Walking on water, got it. That makes sense, right? Uh, creating, you know, feeding thousands and thousands and thousands of people from a Lunchable, I get that. That's amazing. Like a couple of fish, a couple of pieces of bread, thousands of people fed. Yes, glorified, of course. Walking on water, got it, that makes sense. But now, that word now is interesting. It's a, in the Greek language, it's in the aorist tense, which means simply, it's a past action that has ongoing consequences or ongoing effects. So yeah, Christ has been glorified. God has been glorified in his three years of ministry and all that he's been doing. But the height of his exaltation is about to happen. And what's the height of his exaltation? Going to the cross. Humanly speaking, that doesn't make sense. All those other miracles I meant, raising people from the dead, yeah, that makes sense. That's where Jesus is glorified. That's where God's exalted. But here, the height 
Christ is saying, the height of my exaltation, the height of my glorification, the height of God being exalted in the world is me sacrificially laying my life down for others. Christ-like love is sacrificial. He goes, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And notice what he says, and glorify him at once. In other words, now that Judas has left, now that that exaltation is about to happen. Again, showing us that he's talking about his sacrifice. John would go on to say, the same John who wrote this gospel, would go on to say things like this in his letter in 1 John. Notice 1 John 3. If you want to turn there, you can, or you just listen. 1 John 3, 16. A very well-known verse. He says this. By this we know love. Right? In other words, you don't get love from watching movies or, you know, culture or whatever. Here's how you know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. That's love. He laid down his life for us. And then listen to this. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Because Christ laid down his life for us, the only logical response to that from his people is that we would lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on to say in chapter four, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and proved his love by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now listen again, here's here's the ramifications of that kind of love. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us like that, that he willingly sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It just makes sense. It's just logical that if we're saying we're followers of Jesus, then that we're gonna love like Jesus or we're gonna strive to love like Jesus. And the way Jesus loved was sacrificial. It was sacrificial that we, we ought to love one another like that. And listen, he goes on there in chapter four. No one has ever seen God, okay? So God the Father is a spirit, right? Jesus said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but no one's actually ever seen the Father because he's a spirit. Spirit, they don't take, he's not physical. He's, he's a spirit. No one's ever seen the Father, but if we love one another, God abides in us And his love, listen to this, is perfected in us. And I love, like the NIV, other translations will say this. Basically, that his love is manifested in us or it's made visible through us. That's the intention of the verse. That when we're loving each other the way Christ loved us, this invisible God is made visible in the world through us. How amazing is that, that we have the privilege and the honor of showing the world just a, just a little glimpse of what God is like by how we sacrificially love one another. So Christ-like love is sacrificial. It's humble and it's sacrificial. So to love like Jesus, it's gonna cost us something. Don't think this is easy, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us something. What's it going to cost us? Time. It's going to jack up your schedule. 
It's going to cost us our own personal comfort. It will literally cost us money if we're going to love like Jesus. It's going to cost us our agenda. And this one's hard for me for sure. It's going to cost us the need to always be right. Right? And, and to win every argument. Anybody else struggle with that? Is it just me? Like, I like being right. Even when I'm wrong, I'm going to be right somehow. I'm going to like arrange it so that I'm right. Okay? Like, but sacrificial love is like, no, no, you don't always have to win. You don't always have to be right. And it's going to cost us the right that we think we have to not forgive those who've wronged us. Whew, that one's hard. So I don't know about you, but I can, I can justify not forgiving people. Like, God, you saw how bad it, what the thing they did to me was. Like, I don't have to forgive them. I'm thankful you forgave them. I'm all for you forgiving them, God, but that's about where it's going to stop, right? Anybody else with me? Okay. Um, on Monday, October 2nd, 2006, a man named Charles Roberts entered a one-room Amish school building in a small town in Pennsylvania called Nickel Mines. And, and after telling the teacher and then all the other boys, so the teacher and all the boys told them to leave the schoolroom, he proceeded to shoot the 10 remaining girls. I know this is heavy, but hang in, there's a reason for this. He killed five of the girls and then injured five, the, the other five. And then he proceeded to end his own life. They came to find out later on the reason he targeted the girls in the schoolroom was because he was so angry and so bitter at God for allowing his young daughter to die a couple years before. So he'd held on to this anger and this bitterness. Obviously, there were other things going on in his mind. He was disturbed, obviously, but that's what he used to justify shooting those girls. Remember, small little Amish town. This kind of stuff doesn't happen in places like that. So as you can imagine, after the story began to break, media from all around the world uh, flocked to the small town of Pennsylvania just due to the extreme nature of the story. But the attention, the amazing thing is, the attention soon shifted from the, the horrific tragedy itself to, to how the Amish community was responding to this terrible loss of life. Namely, how they were responding in acts of forgiveness and grace towards the wife and family of the shooter. They responded by bringing meals to the family. Can you imagine that? <laughs> to this widow and, and their kids. They were bringing meals. They were organizing prayer groups that circled the house and prayed over their house. This is the community that had just been attacked. They are doing this for the family of the shooter. Circling the house, praying over the house, praying nonstop around the house. And this is the one that's incredible. Six days after family members had buried their daughters, six days after they buried their daughters, those same people attended the funeral for the man who murdered their children. 
Money began to flood into the community from around the world. Uh, the survivors of the tragedy had obviously mounting medical bills and people from around the world wanted to help. Those families who received that money made sure that a portion of it went to the family of the shooter. Wow. So this kind of grace and forgiveness shocked the world. Um, and in their book, a book called Amish Grace, I wanna recommend it to all of you, read it. It's, you can get it on Amazon, it's called uh, Amish Grace. The authors are three psychologists. And they try to discover what is it in a community that could cause such a response of love and grace and forgiveness, that kind of sacrificial love. Where does that come from? And their conclusion was that what made it possible for this community to respond with that kind of love cannot actually be generated by our current secular culture. Why is that? because it flowed from their understanding of the love and the forgiveness of God in Christ. And how that is the basis for how we are to love and forgive and extend grace to those who have wronged us. The forgiveness really eclipsed the, the, the tragic story, right? And the violence. And three weeks after the shooting, the, the words Amish forgiveness had appeared in 2,900 news stories around the world and on 534,000 websites. Amish forgiveness. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then he said, by this, by that kind of love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that story is a modern day example of that being true. All people knowing that you are my disciples if you love one another this way. So Christ-like love is humble, Christ-like love is sacrificial. And then third, Christ-like love is unifying. Christ-like love is unifying. And man, do we need some more of that. Christ-like love is unifying. And here's the amazing thing. You see it in the disciples that Jesus called, right? Think about his disciples. We've talked about this in our series as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. By the way, we're going to start that back up next week. And look at the disciples that he called, all different types of people from different backgrounds, different you know, socioeconomic situations. But the two extremes were, remember, he called a tax collector to be his disciple, Matthew, right? And you know that, that they, tax collectors in, in Jewish world were hated because why? They worked for the Roman Empire who was oppressing them, right? So they would take the taxes from the people that Rome required, and then Rome authorized them to take as much as they could on top of that to line their own pockets, all right? So obviously the people were not gonna like them very much. They were despised. And then the opposite end of the spectrum, Jesus called a guy to be his disciple by the name of Simon. You know who he was? The Bible says he was a zealot, which means that, that he had dedicated his life to the overthrow of the Roman Empire. 
the, the overthrow of Roman oppression. So here you have a guy working for Rome and you got another guy like committed to overthrowing Rome and Jesus says, I love you both. I'm dying for you both. I'm washing both of your feet and both of you are gonna be united, united around the mission to take my love to the world. Both of you and then everybody else in between. And then after the resurrection and the indwelling of the Spirit at Pentecost, God used this incredibly diverse group of people to turn the world upside down. The world was radically transformed because of this group coming together under the banner of Jesus, loving each other and loving the world. That's the power of unity. That's what can happen when we take this seriously. And there's a power when the world looks in and sees people from all different walks of life, different ethnicities, gender, socioeconomic situation, political leanings, all worshiping Jesus and loving and serving each other. It can be the thing that causes people to believe that Jesus was truly sent by God. Like, and that sounds like such a huge statement. But Jesus himself said that in John 17. You can turn over there a couple pages to the right in your Bible. John 17, verses 20 through 23. Listen to how Jesus is praying, right? So if you remember the context, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer right before he's about to be arrested. And it says that he's been praying for his disciples. Now he's about to pray for those who would believe the word of the disciples, which means us. Right? All Christians since that time to now. So notice John 17, verse 20. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, not just the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, that's us. That's basically the church. That's church history. That they may all be one, unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us. Here it is, listen. So that the world may believe that you sent me. I'm praying that they be unified so the world will believe that I was sent by God, Jesus is saying. Because man, if, if people believe he's sent from God, that kind of handles the, I don't know if I want to be a Christian thing, right? I don't know if it's true. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Here it is again. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. So let me ask you a question. This is like hopefully really practical here. So we want this to be really practical. Based just on kind of the social media presence of many professing Christians, do you think that the world would say that Christians are unified? Just from our social media presence. I gotta be honest with you, not too long ago, I kind of ditched social media. I'm not like, oh, look how spiritual I am. No, it's because I am so unspiritual that I had to do it. That's why. Because I caught myself, like I'm seeing things Christians are posting, and I'm like, no! Don't say that in front of the world, please don't say that. You know, and I caught myself like just wanting to get on there and, 
and justify my ranting by, well, I don't want everyone to think that this is what every Christian thinks. And maybe that's where you can, maybe you, that's your space and you're good at that. I can just tell you for me, it's not healthy. It doesn't do good for my soul. Again, like I'm the type that wants to win arguments and I want to be right. So like I needed to like ditch that for a while. Okay. For me, that's what I needed to do. But if we're going to love one another the way Jesus loves us, then we're going to pursue unity with uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We aren't going to be making our differences the biggest issues. That's to me the biggest problem. Like where we all disagree, like that's what we want to blast on social media. I'm like, why do we want to talk about that on social media? It doesn't make sense to me. We shouldn't make our, our differences the biggest issues. What we need to do is we've got to make Jesus our primary focus. Everything else secondary, all right? This is not some kind of vague, you know, kind of airy unity. Well, let's just love each other. What we think doesn't matter. What we believe doesn't matter. That's not what it's talking about. Centered on Christ, his gospel, his mission, his kingdom. That's number one. Everything else after that can be secondary. And then the world will be able to look in and see the difference that Jesus makes and maybe be willing to consider his claims for themselves. Now, I want to end with this. What do we do when we disagree? Because at the end of the day, there will be disagreements among believers. What do we do when we just can't ignore our differences with our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Maybe differences of doctrine, uh, morality, ethics, those sort of things. How can we show oneness when we differ, where we differ the most? Let me give you some helpful things. Uh, I got all of this from this great little book called The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer. So if you know of Schaeffer, he's a great writer, Christian theologian, philosopher of the last century. This is like eight bucks on Amazon. So if you want to invest a little bit, helpful, I'd recommend get a couple, pass them out. All right. I don't know why that's eight bucks. That shouldn't be eight bucks, but it is. Maybe it's just the content is that good. I guess that's what it is. It really is great. Okay, so I'd encourage you to do that. So, so how do we disagree and stay unified? And so he gave us basically four ways to approach disagreement. Here you go. If you want to write it down, I'm just going to use his words, okay, because they're so good. One, we should approach the disagreement with regret. In other words, we should be brokenhearted over the fact that we aren't getting along that the world is fractured, we're fractured, uh, right? The church is fractured and we should enter in with some humility and regret and even tears that we're having to to wrestle with this and, and in a sense argue over these things. So he says, first, we should never come to such difference with true Christians without regret and without tears. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But believe me, evangelicals often have not shown it, amen. We rush in being very, very pleased, it would seem at times, to find other people's mistakes. Ouch. We build ourselves up by tearing people down. This can never show a real oneness among Christians. Amen. So enter in with regret. Two, he says, the bigger the difference, the more love is needed. The bigger the divide, the bigger the issue, more love. 
more love, all right, in those situations. He says, in proportion to the gravity of what is wrong between Christians, it is important consciously to exhibit a seeable love to the world. Isn't that awesome? I love that. A seeable love. Like, the world should look at how we wrestle with disagreements and see love in that. Not all differences among Christians are equal. There are some that are very minor. Man, so good. Others are overwhelmingly important. The more serious the differences become, the more important it becomes that we look to the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this in our own strength. We look to the Holy Spirit to enable us to show love to the Christians with whom we must differ. I love that. There are times where we really need to disagree with one another because it's so serious and so important. But how we do it matters. And when we get to those issues, man, those are big issues. More love is needed. Okay, more grace. Number three, another one, that we need costly love. Costly love. He says, we must show a practical demonstration of love in the midst of the dilemma, even when it is costly. The word love should not just be a banner, like, oh, we love each other. No. In other words, we must do whatever must be done at whatever cost to show love. I think that story of the Amish community is a great example of that. Costly love that the world could see. And then number four, approach the problem with a desire to solve the issue rather than a desire to win the argument. If my wife was here, she would say, amen. Because <laughs> the two of us, we are type A and we both like to win, right? So sometimes we need help in our marriage and we go at it because we're not approaching it from a desire to solve, rather desire to win. But he says, approach the problem with a desire to solve the issue rather than a desire to win the argument. He says, we all love to win. Amen. It's true. Am I the only one in here? Because you're like looking at me like, I can't believe, Chris, you really are ungodly. Like, what's wrong with you? You like to win? Oh, that's so bad. All right. We all love to win. In fact, there is nobody who loves to win more than the theologian. True. The history of theology is all too often a long exhibition of a desire to win. And he's speaking about himself here. This is great. But we should understand that what we are working for in the midst of our difference is a solution, a solution that will give God the glory, that will be true to the Bible. Isn't that awesome? God gets glory, and we want to be true to Scripture. We're not pushing Scripture away. We want to be true to it, but we'll exhibit the love of God simultaneously with His holiness. I love that. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not, we're going to stand firm with the scripture and believe the Bible and all that. And, you know, then that means that we can't be humble and we can't be loving, right? We can't be sacrificial. No, they go together. You can be someone who defends truth and not be a jerk. I know that's hard to imagine because we don't see a lot of that in our world today. But it's true. We can be Christians who have serious beliefs and opinions and we back it up. We believe it's what scripture says and not be jerks, not be arrogant. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus prayed that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Now, at this point, 
You're probably wondering, hey, wait a minute, what does this have to do with the mission of the church? Right? I thought this was a mission series, it's supposed to be ending the mission series with a bang. Right? I thought this was a, a mission series and you haven't even talked about mission at all. Some of you are thinking that. All right, here you go. If your understanding of mission is only what happens outside of the church, uh, like what happens when you're at work or when you're in your neighborhood or wherever you find yourself during the week, then you're right. You're right. If that's your thought, we haven't talked about mission in that sense. But when you understand that mission actually encompasses how we as brothers and sisters relate to one another and that Jesus intends for his church to be a visible display of his love for the world, then we absolutely have been talking about the mission of the church. That's true because our humble, sacrificial, unifying love for one another is intended to be the soil from which mission grows. That kind of love, that kind of support, that kind of sacrifice, for you, that's what mission grows out of. So the question is, are you, am I, connected to and committed to a body of believers in such a way that our non-believing friends are able to look in and get a better understanding of God's love? So let me say it another way. Would the world be able to look at our love for our other Christians and say, I know that person, or I know that church, I know they're followers of Jesus because how they love each other. Jesus said that would be the result if we loved each other the way he loved us. So may it be so with us, amen? Amen, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, Lord as we hear about the way you love us and that that's the calling you have for us with each other. We know that that is impossible apart from your grace. We know that's impossible apart from the power of your spirit in our life. So God, we humbly lay ourselves down. We say, God, we cannot do this apart from you. But God, with you, we can do this in a way that brings you honor, brings you glory, and the world can look in and at least know that this is genuine, that this is real. So God, by your grace, make us this kind of church. Make us this kind of believers for your glory and the good of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.